Well, we at Rock Valley Bible Church have been working through the book of Acts um, since last August. So we've been in the book of Acts, and uh, I'm not sure what number of messages this is, but it's, it's up there maybe 40 or so. I'm not exactly sure. That's a, it's a total guess, but we began in, in chapter 1 in August and worked our way through chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, and we have come this morning to chapter 10. And through our travels of the book, I mean, just, I just want us to reflect upon that a little bit. Um, just think about the things we have seen. We've seen some wonderful things. We've seen thousands of people repent and come to Christ. It's an it's amazing, uh, encouraging thing. We've seen the formation of the church, a, a community where love and unity exist in the church. Uh, we have seen the leadership of the church guide the church through some trying times. Remember Judas defected from the faith. And he betrayed Jesus, and so they worked through, what do we do with, with that office now that Judas isn't there? And they replaced him with Matthias, and the, the congregation was unified after that. And then there was this grumbling about the, the widows and the, the serving of food, and, and the leadership just the, that the apostles gave was good, and all was unified as they figured out how they're going to appoint seven men to uh, serve uh, the body in that way. We've seen the apostles express their great love and commitment to Christ. Uh, just, just preaching, even defying the orders of the authorities who told them not to preach anymore. And yet, through love for Jesus and what they've experienced, they said, we cannot help but say the, the things that we have learned. And uh, they received rebukes and they received beatings. In the case of Stephen, he received even death for preaching Christ. Such was their devotion. We've seen all that in the book of Acts so far. We've seen entire villages turn to Jesus in Samaria. In Acts chapter 8, we saw that. In Acts chapter 9, we saw the, the greatest opponent of Christianity, Saul of Tarsus, on the road to capture Christians and bring them back bound to Jerusalem. We saw him repent of his wayward ways and trust in Christ and proclaim the faith that he once tried to destroy. We've seen miracles in the book of Acts. We've seen the lame men walk in Acts chapter 3. We have seen uh, Aeneas, another man who was crippled and bedridden for eight years in Acts chapter 9, rise up and walk. We have seen Tabitha even raised from the dead in Acts chapter 8. But arguably the greatest miracle of all, which really empowered all of these wonderful things in the book of Acts, whether it's love, whether that's boldness, uh, whether it's the miracles, all happened with the coming of the Holy Spirit in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit came like a, a mighty rushing wind filling the house of that small band of believers in Jesus where they had assembled. And, and you think about Pentecost, this was not a calm event. This was a, a, a chaos. This was a mighty rushing wind, right? I, I've heard before that tornadoes, when, when they come into town, they when you come in your house, whatever, they, it sounds like a, a train track. Click, 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 because it's kind of whipping around and coming. And that's a little bit like what was happening on the day of Pentecost. The rushing wind would have been loud, stirred the objects around the room, right? Those light objects would have been, with papers, you know, would have been pushed on the, on the floor. And, and your hair and your clothes just rippling as this wind is coming around. And, and there was light as the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2, verse 4, divided tongues as a fire and rested on each of the believers and began to speak in other tongues. The Spirit gave them utterance. And you had this room full of people were given the ability to speak languages that they had never known before. And so I think about Pentecost, and some people try to picture the event like this. These, these people sitting calmly, and this, this fire coming upon them, and they're almost, you know, just, just sort of 
sort of praying there. But I think this is a much better picture of Pentecost. Just this whirlwind of chaos and they don't know what, what is happening. And those in Jerusalem, rightly so, in Acts chapter 2, 6 through 7, were bewildered and, and amazed and astonished. And listen to what they said. They said this, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthenians, Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, just all these different places, both proselytes and Jews, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. They were speaking languages they didn't know, but these foreigners who had come to Jerusalem for the Pentecost worship, the Feast of, uh, of Ingathering, the first fruits, they were hearing the, the languages, the mighty works of God, and they were amazed. They said, what does this mean? And that miracle then set the stage for the message of Peter to proclaim and tell them what they were witnessing was the fulfillment of the prophet Joel, who foretold that in the day when the, the Lord would pour out His Spirit upon His people, they would see visions, they would dream dreams, and they would prophesy. And it shall come to pass, Joel said, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And on that day, 3,000 people called upon the name of the Lord and were saved from their sins. Not only was that the first and greatest revival the church has ever known, it was really a, a turning point in history. It is really where, where things hinged in terms of the, the plan of God. It's when the, the Lord was bringing in the new age, the age of the church. Until this point in history, God had focused His attention upon the, the sons of Abraham, the, the people of Israel. The Lord dealt with them according to the law of Moses, sacrifices for sins, priests who needed to receive those animals, kill those animals, pour out the blood, put it upon the altar. The worship was required to take place in Jerusalem. But with the coming of the Messiah, with the coming of Jesus, all of this changed with the outpouring of the Spirit. God was, was changing and transforming from, from a focus on one nation to a focus on all the nations. God began to work also in the hearts of His people in great ways. It's the promise of the new covenant brought about by Jesus, the Messiah. Just consider Jeremiah 31, 31 and 33. This is what God promised with Pentecost. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. For this is the covenant thou make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In other words, when the new covenant comes, God's going to change the hearts of people. He's going to work in the hearts of people. No longer will they be stubborn and rebellious, but He's going to soften them. So they follow him with a willing heart. And that's what Ezekiel says when he talks about the new covenant. He gives a little bit more clarity. He says this is what happens when the Holy Spirit would cause this to happen in the hearts of the people. He says this, Ezekiel 36. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The promise of God's spirit in God's people came on the day of Pentecost. When the spirit came to dwell in the people of God. When they experienced in a, in a new way the working of the spirit of God. Not experienced that way in the Old Testament. And the book of Acts really is the working out of Acts chapter 2 and how that works of the Spirit coming 
into the hearts of, of believers. Even if I've told you before, but many, believer, many people believe that the book of Acts should not be called the Acts of the Apostles, but should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because you see the Spirit coming up over and over and over and over again. The most prominent display is the day of Pentecost, I said, when the Holy Spirit came upon the Jewish believer. But this wasn't the only time that the Holy Spirit came upon a group of people. Also in Acts chapter 10, our text this morning, we're going to see the Holy Spirit come upon the Gentiles. You can open there if you want in, in Acts chapter 10. Just look at verse 44. It just describes about the, the Holy Spirit coming. Acts chapter 10, verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Now, those who heard the word were Gentiles. That's the significant point here. The Holy Spirit fell just like at Pentecost upon the Jews. Now the Holy Spirit's falling upon the Gentiles, not the people of Israel. In fact, the title of my message this morning is Gentile Pentecost. Because what happened in Acts chapter 2 is now here in Acts chapter 10 happening to the Gentile people. Now, before we actually read our text, I need to set the stage by bringing us back to verse 1. Our text starts in verse 40, 34 this morning, but I, I just want to bring us back and review because it's so important just to, to catch up where we've been. So kind of reviewing our message from last week. If you remember, uh, the story begins in verse 1 with a centurion named Cornelius, and he sees an angel. This, by the way, is just my outline I went through last week up there on the overhead. He saw an angel who told him to send some men to Joppa to find a man named Peter and get him and bring him back because they have a message that they all have to hear. So Cornelius sent these men out on their way to Joppa, a day and a half journey away. And while they're on their way, Peter sees a vision. He saw a vision of this huge sheet filled with all kinds of, of animals. And this voice comes out and says, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter, being a strict Jew, had never eaten any of that before. And so he said, by no means, Lord, I've never done that. And, and the voice said, what God has made clean, do not call common. And it was three times that she came down once, twice, three times. Peter, kill and eat. Peter, kill and eat. Peter, kill and eat. He says, by no means, no, I've never done that. And God says, what I have called, what God has made clean, do not call common. So he's, he's inwardly perplexed about this vision as to what it might mean. And at that moment... As Peter's pondering the vision, these men from Caesarea arrive at his house looking for him. And so Peter rose and, and summoned a few of his friends. And what they did is they took off and they went to Caesarea to the home of Cornelius. And after a day and a half of travel, so it's a day and a half there and then a day and a half back, they got to Caesarea, arrived at his home, escorted in to see Cornelius. And Peter meets Cornelius and they exchange the stories. And Peter says in verse 28, to the people there. He says, you yourselves know just how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit with anyone from another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. He says, I asked then why you sent for me. And so he, he kind of explains the situation why he came, because according to Jewish custom, that was not lawful for him to do. People would have seen what he did and said, that's not good. But he had this vision and he's working through, and I, and I just trust that on the walk, Peter's gaining some clarity as to what that vision meant, especially he's talking with the, the centurion soldiers who come in and got him. They're, they're just thinking about this. And, and the, the meaning, as Peter's understanding, wasn't dealing with food. It was dealing with people. What God has made clean, the people that I have made clean, do not call common. 
And then Cornelius responds with his story about the angel he'd seen, how he took Peter to Joppa. And then we get that great verse in verse 33. Cornelius said, Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. What a, what a great statement of a church meeting, right? We are all here, and we all are here, right? We're here in the presence of God, and we are here to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. See, God delights when his people gather together, and God delights when his people gather together to hear a message from the Lord, and God delights when his people are ready to obey. We're, we're all here, we're ready, and you just kind of sense that they're right there on their, on their seats, right? Because here's come this man who's got this message, this divine, this divine um, appointment that has been happening, that Cornelius received this vision, sent it off there, and then Peter's just coming back to them. Uh, I love the heart of those who gathered the house of Cornelius. And I just ask you, can you picture yourself, as we think about Gentile Pentecost, can you picture yourself in the home of Cornelius? There were no cell phones in those days, so Peter couldn't text ahead. Well, I'm running a little bit late. I'm going to be about 4.15. So all, all Cornelius could do is he said, okay, I'm going to send a job, but it's about a day and a half away, and if it's successful... He, they're going to get there, and they're going to bring Peter back. It's going to be about a day and a half, so it's going to be sometime in the afternoon, maybe. And so as he summoned all his family and, and all his friends together, he would have told them, how about, how about we just have lunch together, and then we'll wait for Peter to, to come. Because uh, if all comes to plan, he's going to come. How about we we'll come at noon? We'll just have, have lunch together, and then we've got to listen to this message for us. And, and so just think about the hours waiting for him to arrive. They're not meeting in a church, a nice air-conditioned room like this. They're meeting in a house. Probably Cornelius, being a centurion, is probably a wealthy man, probably maybe had a bigger house in the neighborhood, but still in those times, it's probably as big a room as you can get was probably fairly small. In a hot climate like that, lots of people in that room, maybe some people drifting outside. There would have been just anticipation. Without air conditioning, it may not have smelled so nice. Everyone kind of just waiting there, just sensing what's going on, but they're anticipating when Peter come in, would come in and tell them the message, they're going to hear this message. And what they heard was well worth the wait. So let's read about the Gentile Pentecost. We read in verse 34. When Peter opened his mouth and he said this, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You yourselves, as for the word he sent to Israel, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were afflicted by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. Of him... All the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. 
And it was at that moment, while Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit came upon all who heard the word, and the believers who'd come from the circumcised were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit, Kestis, was poured out even on the Gentiles. And they were amazed. And Peter said, Can anyone withhold baptism for those who receive the word just like, receive the Spirit just like we did? And he commanded them to be baptized. And they asked him, remain for some days. That was the Gentile Pentecost. My first point here is preaching the gospel. That's what we find Peter doing in verses 33, 34 through 43. What's so interesting about this message is there's very little that's new about this message. It's, it's the same message that, that Peter has been preaching just, just on and on through the book of Acts. Right? Especially as we've been working our way through the book of Acts, we've constantly seen Peter follow just a simple outline of preaching the gospel. He just talked about the life of Jesus. Uh, from his life, to his death and his burial, and his resurrection, and his ascension, and his exaltation. That's, that's like what Peter preached, always. And not that all these points are clear in every sermon preached by the apostles, but so far with Peter, it's, it's pretty good. It's a a pretty good outline. It was day of Pentecost. Life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, exaltation. That, those are all there. Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost. It's a good outline of his message after healing the lame beggar in Acts 3. It's a good outline of what he told the Sanhedrin when they told him not to preach in Acts 4 and 5. And we get to Philip preaching in Acts chapter 8. We're simply told that Philip, Acts chapter 8 verse 12, preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. I, I have no doubt that he basically said the same thing about Jesus. He lived a great life, and he died at the hands of sinful men, and they buried him, but he raised from the dead, and the apostles saw him. He appeared to the apostles, then he, he raised, he, he ascended up into heaven where he sits waiting to judge the living and the dead. And when preaching the Ethiopian eunuch, Acts chapter 8, verse 35, we simply are told that, that Philip preached the good news about Jesus, that, that he lived a perfect life. Died by sinful men, buried in a tomb, raised on the third day, appeared to the disciples, ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God, where he's going to judge the world. And, and that's what Peter does with our, our message this morning. Just going to preach about the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, exaltation. I say it over and over and over again because that's what I encourage you to do as you speak with other people about the gospel of Christ. Just, just tell them the story of Jesus. Right? Tell them a little about his life. Tell a little bit about his, his death and his burial. He really died and, and how he raised from the dead and how now he raised into heaven without being buried again, without dying again. And now he sits and waits as judge. And that's what Peter does after a brief introduction. So as we look at, at Peter's message here, let's just, let's just look here at his introduction, verse 34 and 35. Peter says this, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. I think this is the great lesson that Peter was learning as he went from the house of Cornelius, as he, as he went from his place in Joppa, heard the story of Cornelius, uh, contemplated the sheet coming down out of heaven, and understood he was not talking about food, talking about people, right? What God has made clean, do not call common, that God shows no partiality, that anyone from any nation who calls upon the Lord can come to the Lord and be saved from their sins. And now for us, we just, we live in that truth so, so much in our lives. 
that we don't even see and understand what Peter was grappling with. And, and, and it's, it's just hard to understand because we're Gentiles living long after Acts 10, after the Gentile Pentecost has come. And, and we live in history, right? Long after that time. And we know that the church of Jesus Christ is global. We may not know people personally from other lands, right? But, but we know that there's a, a church in, in Russia and in Brazil, in, in Australia and in Austria and Sri Lanka and Poland and Japan and Indonesia and Ireland and Denmark and Morocco and Kenya and South Africa. And you just go on and on and on. And we just know right, that there are believers in those nations. Sometimes those nations have strong churches. And sometimes, particularly in persecuted countries, there are pockets of believers, persecuted believers. Um, and, and we just know, like difficult Muslim nations, say Iran or Somalia or Pakistan, that there are some who believe in Jesus, but they may not be so overt because if they're overt, they are, are killed. But we know that God's church is across the globe, right? We, we hear about missionaries, missionary stories, missionaries coming from abroad, right? We support missions overseas. I've been on some missions trips, right? It, it's just it's so ingrained in our minds. We, we know and love. We, we love the fact that the God we worship here is the same God that's worshiped all the way around the world, but that wasn't Peter's mindset. In his mind, okay, the only people clean were the people of Israel who worshipped in Jerusalem. They were the only followers of the Lord who were clean. Everyone else was, was unclean. I mean, that's his idea in verse 28. It's unlawful for me, Jew, to associate with anyone from another nation. Like, I can't even go to another nation because they are unclean. Never, never mind the fact that they're, they're not part of the people of God. Truly, oh, they may be proselytes. Kind of they can come and worship from a distance because they love our God and what a great God we have. But, but we got to keep them at, at arm's length. But the Jews really thought that foreigners were unclean. They're not worthy to, to come into God's presence. And I don't, I, I don't think few of us have ever experienced what, it, what Peter would have experienced or what even Gentiles would have experienced. For, for all of our racial tension um, in, in our nation today, nothing compares with what Jews and Gentiles were dealing with back then. I remember a trip Avon and I took to Israel. This was over 20 years ago now. And um, it said, it, it said a, a trip to Israel is worth a semester in seminary. Totally, totally. If you have a chance to go to Israel, go, because you get to see Jerusalem. You get to see these sites. But anyway, we were there, and uh, there, there, was, there was one night. I remember Avon and I we were out walking in Jerusalem. And uh, the modern city is right where we were, right? Stoplights and cars going by. And we had some sort of meeting in some sort of building, some parliament building of some time. I'm not sure exactly where it was. And we're in this busy street waiting for this light to turn green. And uh, we were sort of lost a little bit. Like we had our map. We didn't quite know how to go. We didn't have a phone back then to be able to, to see where, where we were. And, and kind of we were in the area. We were close. And uh, like a local totally would have known exactly what we're talking about. And, and I saw uh, this man, he was a, a Hasidic Jew, and I saw him, you know, he had his typical hat and his tendrils and things like that. And, and I saw him there, and I, I just looked at him, and, and I, I said, uh, I don't know the building, right? Do you know where the parliament building is? We're trying to find that. And, and he went like this. Maybe talk with his buddy. And I was talking over here. Do you know where that parliament building is? He's turned green, and then he walked. As if I didn't even exist. Now, 
as I've done that, dealt with strangers in, in America or foreign lands or missions, if I talk to someone, people always at least acknowledge that I'm there. This guy had zero acknowledgement that I was there. And this was, he didn't have an earbud in. Okay, this was days before earbud, 20 years ago. It's not like he was like rocking out. Oh, he can't hear you. He's rocking out. No, not that. He totally heard me, totally ignored me because I'm unclean. And that's exactly what Peter knew and experienced. And Peter was this guy here who thought these guys were unclean. And now for him to say, truly understand in verse 34 that I should, that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. See, I understand now. God shows no partiality. That's why I'm with you, Cornelius. And that anyone who calls upon the Lord, right, fears the Lord, does what's right, right, walks in his ways, is acceptable before him. And then Peter preaches Jesus after that brief introduction. He then talks about the life of Jesus. Look at verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed with the devil, for God was, was with him. Peter begins by appealing to their common knowledge. He says, you yourselves know, right? This word that, that Israel was sent, right, through this, through this man. And, and though these people lived in Caesarea, um, the word, word got out, um, like Nazareth is only like 30 miles away, and the Sea of Galilee is maybe 45 miles away. It's, it's really relatively close. They would have heard what would have happened about this Jesus, this preacher that came to town, this, this one who preaches the good news. They, they would have heard about John the Baptist who was in the, the Jordan River baptizing people and as a sign of their repentance from sins. They, they would have heard about that. They would have heard about Jesus and how special this man was, how he's anointed with power and the Holy Spirit, and that he was, he was healing all who were oppressed by the devil. They, they would have heard some of the miracles, certainly, like how he cleansed the lepers, how, how he gave sight to the blind men, how he gave hearing to the deaf, how he healed paralytics so they could walk again, how he healed withered hands, and how he cast out demons. With these miracles, it was clear, right? Verse 38 says that God was with him. Peter says he was Lord of all, verse 36. But all these things, interesting, they, they would have heard all these things about Jesus, but they never would have seen these things about Jesus. They would have nearly, merely would have heard them from afar. But Peter said he saw them up close and personal. Still, talking about the life of Jesus, verse 39. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. In other words, right, you may have heard about all these wonderful things about Jesus, but we saw all these wonderful things about Jesus. We witnessed what he did in Galilee, and we witnessed what he did in Jerusalem. We were with him for three years we walked with him. And, and yes, he was wonderful. And everything you heard of Jesus was true. But then he died. We saw his death as well. It was a cruel death, verse 39. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. See, they took Jesus, and they took this log, and they put Jesus on this log, and they took out these rusty nails, and they banged them into his, into his wrists, into his hands. 
and they banged them into his feet, and then they hoisted him up where he would have been held by these points, of, these tender points on his, on his hands and, and in his wrists and his legs. And it would have been very painful. He died a very painful death over several hours, drowning slowly, dying of asphyxiation, so he could not even breathe. That was Peter describing the death of Jesus. The story didn't end there, however. Uh, he, he skipped over the burial, but death assumes burial. But then he says in verse 40 about the resurrection, but God raised him on the third day. And, and Peter just declares this as a fact. He doesn't go to the scriptures to say how this was prophesied in the Old Testament. He just, he just declares it, right? Because these are Gentiles somewhat familiar with the scripture, but not needing proof from the scripture. And so he just declared it. Scriptures may not have had authority in the, the lives of the Gentiles like it would for a Jew, and so he didn't, he didn't go in Acts chapter 2, right? He's spending a lot of time in the Scriptures demonstrating all these things are true. These Gentiles are like, whatever. He rose from the dead, really. They didn't have to prove anything from the Old Testament. He proved it from his, his own eyes. If you look at verse 40 again, he raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who'd been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And Peter said this, I saw this Jesus in life, and I saw this Jesus in death, and I saw this Jesus buried, and I saw this Jesus risen from the dead, and I'm telling you about this Jesus risen from the dead. He wasn't a spirit. It's, it's not a vision. I had this vision, right, a couple days ago. It was not that, okay, because I ate with him, and I drank with him. Jesus ate, and Jesus drank as well with us, and I talked with Jesus after he rose from the dead. Not only me, but all of the apostles, everyone whom God chose to be part of this ministry. In our discussion, he told us a few things. First off, he told, told us this. He commanded us, verse 42, to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And so here's the next thing, right? Kind of skipped the ascension, didn't talk about the ascension, but talked about the exaltation of Jesus. That here he is, seated at the right hand of God, the one who has the power over the world, just waiting to execute his judgment upon the world. And Jesus is the judge, and the message is this. You need to get right with him. I'm the judge. I'm coming back. I'm going to establish right and wrong. Now, I, I think about that message today. It's not so popular that Jesus is the judge. He's the one who's going to come. Most often, right, we, we hear message, evangelistic message from people. What do we hear about? We hear about not the judgment of Jesus. We hear about the what? The love of Jesus, right? Jesus loves you. He wants you to believe in him. He wants you to trust in him. So don't go astray, especially don't turn away from one who loves you so much. And, and none of that's wrong. That is true. Jesus is filled with love. His arms are open wide to bring any of us in. But... When that is such the emphasis, it, it's a little hard to, to understand then Jesus' role as judge. I mean, will Jesus really judge the one he loves? I mean, if, if he really loves me, he, he, that will be better than the judgment, right? And, and it can tend even to universalism, right? One famous evangelical preacher turned ultra-liberal wrote, wrote a book, Love Wins. Like, as if, as if love conquers the judgment, and love is going to be so strong that the judgment isn't going to be there. But, but Peter, in verse 42, said that Jesus, straight from his mouth, 
said that we are supposed to testify Jesus is the judge. That, that someday we will stand before Jesus, and this brings great clarity into our lives today. Someday we'll stand before Jesus, and, and as we stand there, one of two outcomes are going to be the case. Either he, he is going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, and, and bring you into his kingdom. Or the other one, he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. And you go into the pits of hell. See, understanding Jesus being the judge has this great clarifying uh, issue in our life. And, and you know, we've, we've, we, we have a track. It's on the, the back table here. I put some out. Are you a good person track? This is a great track to give away. You got one, Trey? You pull one from the table, anything on the table, right? You, you grab it, right? But here, th- what this is talking about is uh, it's talking about are we really sinners? And just goes through the Ten Commandments. You're probably familiar with this. Perhaps not. I, I, I trust so. But, but then it talks here about, about judgment. You'll have to answer for every one of your sins on judgment day. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. And then the, the, the Mr. Good Guy says, but won't God just forgive me? That's the logic. If he's loving, he's just going to forgive me. And, and then he says, try that in court. I know I keep breaking the law, but can't you just let it slide? You can put it in there. Judge, you love me so much. Right? You wouldn't really, really condemn me. But it says this, only a corrupt judge would do that. A good judge would say, justice demands that you pay for your crimes. And that's what Jesus is. Justice demands you pay for your crimes. Jesus told us to preach him as judge. So the application, get right with Jesus. Oh, yes, he's tender. He's loving. He's forgiving. In fact, that's where Peter goes next. Verse 43. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Isn't it so interesting? We always hear the Old Testament. Oh, that's the book of wrath. It's the angry God. Right, But now Jesus has come, and Jesus is love, and Jesus then brings grace. Read your Bibles, all right? What, what do we have? We have Jesus being the stern judge who's going to judge the living and the dead, and we have the Old Testament full of grace and mercy. Verse 43, to, Jim, to him, to Jesus, all the prophets. You just name them, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, all of them. They proclaim that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's really the call of the gospel, right? To believe in Jesus. He'll forgive your sins. And he will forgive your sins so that you stand before the judge and he will declare you innocent. Not because you are innocent, but because Jesus took upon himself your punishment at at the cross and he has forgiven you. And there's nothing the judge can hold against you anymore because as we... We sang today, right, I bring guilty hands, but I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that that the righteousness of Christ covers me and cleanses me, washes me, makes me whiter than snow. And when that's the case, Jesus the judge will say, enter into the joy of my rest. If we but believe in Jesus and know forgiveness of sins, and those in Caesarea that day experience forgiveness and that is my second and last point this morning, receiving the Spirit. We see Peter preaching the gospel, and then we see receiving the Spirit. That's exactly what happened here. And, and, and I'll show you, but you, you want to think Pentecost, receiving the Spirit. 
Look at verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Now, I, I love what verse 40 says, 44 says, that Peter was still saying these things. He was, he was like still talking. He was, he was still speaking. He wasn't done. He was still saying these things. In fact, if you turn over to Acts chapter 11, Peter's telling this story again to those in Jerusalem saying, you went to eat with, with Gentiles? Like, how did that go? And then Peter describes this whole thing about this vision and Cornelius and going and da-da-da-da-da. And then the, the punchline comes to us. Verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as upon us at the beginning. In other words, if he's just beginning to preach, how much of his sermon did he get through? He got through his introduction. There were no three points in the poem, no closing song, no dimming of the lights, no altar call, no introspection. The Holy Spirit, in Peter's introduction, came upon them and interrupted Peter. I was like, Peter, you're too long-winded. You're going too long. I'm just going to end this thing right now. Boom, Holy Spirit. Boom, comes. And it says, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. And you say, okay, so what does that mean? Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. I, I, my, my point says it's the receiving the Spirit. We'll, we'll see that, that phrase come up here. But I think the best explanation of what happened here is Acts chapter 2. In fact, again, Acts chapter 11, verse 15. As he looks back, he says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us in the beginning. The Holy Spirit in Acts 10 was just like what happened to us in Acts chapter 2. That sudden, loud, mighty rushing wind that came and filled the entire house, that was loud and came with chaos, stirred up the papers, blew the hair and, and rustled our clothes and was loud and we didn't know. And, and then we had these tongues of fire and, 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 and people were speaking in tongues. In fact, that's exactly what, what it says in chapter 10. It says, verse 46, that they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. In other words, right, they're speaking in tongues exactly like they were speaking in tongues in Acts 2. Right? They were speaking forth these languages that they had never known before. Perhaps... These were Gentiles who knew, who knew Roman, right? Knew, what's it called? Latin. Latin. <laughs> who knew Latin? Thank you. They knew Latin, but all of a sudden they're speaking perfect Hebrew. Have you ever studied Hebrew? I've never studied Hebrew before. But these Jews understood what they were speaking. They were speaking Hebrew, though they'd never studied it before. And that's how they know. In fact, how else can they know? Verse 46, they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. You can only say you're extolling God if you understand what they're saying. This wasn't gibberish. Tongues in the Bible isn't gibberish. It's a known language that you don't know, but the hearer knows. That's what's going on here. It's miraculous. It, it only happens a few times. It happened in Acts 2, happened in Acts 10, and one more time in Acts chapter 19, we will see this. These languages. But, but this confused the believers who come with Peter. Look at verse 45. The believers from among the circumcision who'd come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Okay, so here you have another explanation. It fell in verse 44. In verse 45, it's described here as being poured out on the Gentiles. Here it is the gift of the Holy Spirit. They didn't work for it. They didn't, they didn't like labor for it. it was, they didn't even hear the end of the sermon. They just heard the first part of the sermon and the Holy Spirit is given to them as a gift. And it says here they were amazed. Like, I'm, I'm thinking, 
Look at your maze. Why? What were you expecting? You came with Peter from Joppa. You heard the story about Cornelius, and you're coming along the way, and Peter's probably talking to Cornelius' friends, probably talking about God and this vision and common. And you know what? These Jewish people, they're, they're, they're not unclean. That's what God is telling me. They're not unclean. And, and so as Peter's coming to preach a message, what did you expect? Didn't you expect them to repent and believe? Interesting, I think they maybe expected that, but they expected them to come then in as proselytes. Like, okay, yeah, you can, you can come and worship our God because we, we got this God thing going on in Jerusalem and proselytes who are non-Jewish can come into the, the fold, but you can't come too far. You can only stay in the court of the Gentiles. You can't come all the way into worship, but you, you can give us money for sure, but you can't come. I think that's what they thought, but then when the Holy Spirit comes, they're like saying, wait, 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 wait. How can these... How can these unclean people have the clean spirit within them speaking these things? And so they're confused. And, and, and they're amazed. And then Peter just basically stands up in uh, verse 47 and goes right to baptism. People believe and then they're baptized. It's a pattern in Acts. You believe first and you're baptized second. You're not baptized first and then believe. You believe and then you're baptized. That's what it always is in the Bible. Verse 47 can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And there you see my point there. Peter's talking about having received the Holy Spirit. That's why I said they're receiving the Spirit. Just The Holy Spirit falls upon them. The Holy Spirit's poured out upon them. They're receiving the Holy Spirit. And at that point, then he commands them to be baptized. And we're going to have a baptism service come this summer. I just encourage you, if you've not been baptized after you've believed, to come and talk with me. And uh, we can have you baptized, just like Peter. Peter says, can we withhold water? And, and it's interesting. They knew about John the Baptist uh, because he, he had mentioned them, verse 37. They, they knew about the, the baptism that John proclaimed, right? They, they knew it from afar. And, and John stood there in the waters. He called for anyone who repents, wants to come and wants to be baptized, right? right? Just as a sign of your cleansing, right? Just wash away your sins, right? Just as a symbol of that, as a sign of repentance, do that. Pharisees came who were unrepentant, and he refused to baptize them. He refused to immerse them in the River Jordan. But here these people saw that, and then so instantly they knew what baptism was. They had a category for it. They had John the Baptist in their mind, and they went out. They found some water someplace, and verse 48 says, he commanded them to be baptized, and we assume they were baptized at that point, simply taking them, allowing them to give testimony of their faith in Christ. And I don't know how many people were here with Cornelius, you know, maybe 25, maybe 50, maybe 100, but they all received the word, they all received the spirit, and I assume then they all were baptized that day. Then they asked them to remain for some days, and Peter then did remain for some days, certainly rejoicing with them, having an enjoyable time with them, just reflecting upon the work of God, but, but even here, think about this Jew from this clean goes to these unclean, but now they have been made clean they profess their faith. They've, they've been baptized, embraced into God's kingdom. And Peter's mind is, is, like, is like changing and transforming. It's like, like just like they were on the day of Pentecost, right, when the Holy Spirit came and they just tried to figure out what, what, what that meant. And here it is, they're trying to figure out what this meant. And, and a lot of the rest of the New Testament actually is working this out, how when Jew and Gentile can come together in harmony, how appropriate it is we're reading the book of Acts, of, of Ephesians. This is the issue in the book of Ephesians. Is Jew and Gentile together. It's a mystery of the gospel. 
that, that we receive the promise just like Jews, that we are, as we'll read next Sunday, one new man. We are together in the church, Jews and Gentiles. And we see Peter doesn't get it quite right in Acts, in Galatians 2. He's going to be, um, going to show he's inconsistent. It takes a long time. It's hard. It's hard to work through these things. But, but for us, you know, we're, we're so far removed from Acts 10. I've just tried to give you a sense of the power of what Acts chapter 10 is with the Gentile um, Pentecost, just like the Jewish Pentecost of Acts chapter 2. Oh, that we would see the Spirit afresh in our lives, that he would come, that we would follow him in obedience and joy like Peter experienced here. Let's pray together. Father, I would pray that you, by your grace, would, would come among us and visit us with your Spirit. Um, God, we, we know that the outpouring of the Spirit like this is, is, is rare in history. And um, God, it's not that we expect that, but we do expect, oh God, your Spirit to move in us, that we would exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, faithfulness and self-control. God, that we would see the gifts of the Spirit manifest in us and in our lives, realizing that, that what we're doing here at church is not a natural thing. We, we, aren't, we aren't just a, a social club. God, we are a, a divine club where you have worked in our hearts and stirred us deeply, um, Father, for the ways of Christ. And so I would pray you'd stir us even more and more and more. And we know you and to love you. And the promise of, of Jeremiah and Ezekiel of you changing our hearts, giving us soft hearts, hearts of flesh rather than hearts of stones, new hearts with your word in our hearts, God, that we would walk in your ways willingly and, um, God, to, to please you in every respect. So help us, O oh Lord, to, to see what's happening here and to believe you and to trust in you and to experience all the fullness of the Spirit in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.